welcome back to The Serve. My name is Isak and you are listening to the podcast where we talk about our year of service with Mercy Volunteer Corps. Today we are bringing you an episode highlighting Sister Karen. She is one of our community support people here in Cincinnati. Special thanks to Naomi for interviewing Karen as well. All right, enjoy. Okay, so Naomi, you are interested in how I came to be where I am today. Yes, I'm interested in hearing about why did you become a sister? What called you? What drew you into this type of life? Well, you have to imagine a very different world that I grew up in. Nothing like the world you grew up in. So when I was trying to figure out my life path, my options were a lot more narrow. It was common for girls after high school to either become a secretary, get married, go to the convent, become a nurse or a teacher. That was kind of what was laid out as normal. And I had the Sisters of Mercy in grade school and they appeared very happy. And I did a lot of volunteer work through coaching athletic teams and whatever was available to me. I stayed involved through my high school years in my parish and grade school. So I feel like in the eighth grade, I knew I wanted to become a sister. I didn't know if I wanted to be a sister of mercy or a, I thought about a Carmelite, which is, would be a cloistered order. And then I had the Ursulines in high school. So it wasn't until a few years later that I decided that mercy was my path. So I think always looking back, you see things differently than when you're in the midst of it. But I did normal high school things, had fun, played sports. I went to an all-girls high school, was active in the newspaper and worked stage crew for the plays and learned how to drive and went to parties and dances and really enjoyed my high school years. So the Sisters of Mercy that I entered were pretty much living the same life that Catherine McCauley started over a hundred years before that. We dressed almost the same. We said basically the same prayers. We had the same daily schedule, the same kind of work. And then all of a sudden, Vatican II came. The women's movement came the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. So the whole culture went through profound change, and that impacted the religious orders as well. So we became, our dress changed, our lifestyle changed, we didn't live, and this these changes happened over a course of years. They didn't happen overnight. But instead of living in large convents with 10 or 12 people, we gradually came to live in smaller groups and then not 
in parish convents and then with living alone or living with just one other person. But also at the same time, a lot of women realized that religious life wasn't their calling. It was for a while, but now that there were more options for women, they were following a different call. So a lot of women left religious orders, which had consequences for the number of schools we staffed, the number of hospitals we worked in. So gradually, sisters started working in social justice areas and in social services, leaving traditional ministries of schools and hospitals. So it was a period, a 50-year period or more of radical change, and it's still going on. Fewer people are entering religious life because they can serve other people now in a variety of ways. When I was making my choice, there weren't too many options for living and giving service. It's been a good lifestyle for me. It's helped me become, find and become my true self, which is never ending. You think you know who you are and then you find out you're not who you want to be or who you think you are. So it's, it's like peeling the layers of an onion. You gradually get closer and closer to your center. But it um, works for me. I'm active in my neighborhood. I'm active in my church. I'm active in social justice groups. So there's a variety of ways to follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell would say. Once you find out what your bliss is, which again evolves, it changes as you change, as your physical health changes, as you gain more knowledge, more skills. So life is a journey, it's not a destination. It's, it's an adventure, it's a calling. Can you talk about what the process was like to join? Did you just tell a sister and was like, hey, I'd like to join? Or did, was there a discernment period? How did you actually become one? Okay, well, it's very different today than it was when I joined. Actually, what precipitated it was um, we all, or I took this college, I don't know if it was an entrance test, some kind of a test, and I got a call on a Sunday morning that I had won a scholarship to this Our Lady of Cincinnati College. And that threw me into a panic because I hadn't told my family that I wanted to be a sister. And so my mother was taking a nap and I went up and told her and I cried and she cried. And my dad was sitting at the dining room table reading or doing something. and. Um, I didn't get a reaction from him, or I didn't get any disapproval, let's say. But he kept his feelings to himself. But, but I knew both of them were supportive because they were active. In those days, the sisters didn't drive, so they depended on people to take them where they needed to go. And my parents did that for them. So that was 
in the springtime, probably in March. So my mother, we went up to the convent and said to the sisters, I want to be a nun, how do I do it? And so I wrote a letter saying that, and then they sent some kind of an application to fill out. I think I had to have a dentist report and an eye doctor report, a physical. And I had to have my pastor recommend me. So I remember going up to the priest's house and asking him, and I think he wrote one sentence down and handed it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I remember until it was time to buy the, then they sent a list of things that you needed to bring with you. And I could show you in the basement my trunk that we had to take, a big locker trunk. And in it we had to have old lady shoes, nun shoes, and nun's underwear and nun's stockings. And we had to bring a bath towel and washcloth. And I remember I had this beautiful, two of them, two beautiful soft blue towels, which when I got there, they promptly took, they let me keep one, but I had to turn in the other one. So that was part of the lesson of detachment, that when you belong to a community, you don't own anything. Everything you get goes to the community. Everything you need comes from the community. So it was called detachment. So they didn't want me attached to my comfortable blue towel. So we had to have these white nightgowns and black bathrobe and a black shawl. We didn't wear coats in those days. We just had a black shawl that you... It was warm because there were so many layers of clothing. So you got your trunk together. And then on September 7th, my family took maybe our novitiate was in Cincinnati, so I only had to go downtown. Other people came from other cities and states to enter the Sisters of Mercy of Cincinnati. So I don't remember any kind of interview. I just remember sending in this application. I'm sure the sisters at my parish spoke for me and said, yes, take her. But if you tried to enter today, oh my gosh, you have to jump through so many hoops of psychological testing and I don't know what else, but interviews and discernment. And I'm glad I entered when I did because I don't know if I'd make it today. And how many years did it take? Because I know for like priests, they have to go to like, they get like degrees and it can take like 10 years, I think, for priests. Like how long was it? How long did it take for you to become like? When I entered, and it's somewhat similar now, the first year you're called a postulant. And we went to college classes, except the professors came to us. We didn't go to campus. Next, at the end of the postulant year, you're received and you wear the habit, which means you get the habit with a white veil. You're called a, a canonical novice. I have a picture of me that looks rather dour because we weren't supposed to have our pictures taken. So in the canonical year, which is your first year as a novice, you don't take college classes except theology. So you have lessons on the vows and religious life, and it's a year of prayer and study for the convent. 
And then you have a second year as a novice where you go back to college for your sophomore year. Again, the professors came to us. So at the end of the second year in Abishit, you make your first vows. So we made a vow of poverty, chastity, obedience, and care of the poor, sick, and ignorant. And those were called temporary vows because we made them for three years. I think the idea behind that was, well, if you change your mind, you haven't made a lifelong commitment yet. This is for you to get a really good chance to see, can't, is the life for you? So after first vows, you go out to your assigned ministry. And mine was to teach seventh grade at a nearby school. So some people had some education when they entered. So their path was a little bit different. If they had already graduated from college, they didn't go back. They started their ministry right away. There was a move to get sisters into the classroom faster. So some people taught and went to college in the summers and on Saturdays. But by the time I was there, they said, no, we're going to get the sisters educated before we send them out to do their ministry. So then after three years, we renewed our vows. We came back together for the summer, had some more classes, got to see everybody, and made vows for two years. And then after five years, we made final vows. So it takes nine years altogether. I don't know if, if that's the same today or not. But it it's very organic. It didn't seem... When we celebrated our Jubilee, we celebrated from the day we entered because we were living the life from day one, even though we hadn't made vows. We were living as if we had. So um, other than your towel being taken away, what was the biggest uh, adjustment that occurred? A friend of mine had entered the convent a couple years before, and she took the name Francis, Sister Francis. So I went down to this religious goods store and bought her a beautiful, what I thought was a wood-carved statue of St. Francis of Assisi. And I bought myself one, a statue of Mary, wood-carved, that I just loved. So I took it with me to the convent, and somehow before I got there, I, I knocked it over, and part of her crown cracked off. So because it was imperfect, I could keep it. <laughs> <laughs> So I still have it, and it's not as contemporary now as it was then, but it's a reminder of the old days. Is there anything else I couldn't keep? I don't remember. I do remember several years later, my mother gave me a New Jerusalem Bible, which was new at that time, and it was a more modern translation. And in my desire to be detached from it, I left it at the house where I was after I was reassigned, because I thought, this isn't mine, this belongs to the community. So I have since acquired another New Jerusalem Bible, which I have today. Can you talk a little bit more about what life was like pre-Vatican II? Because you mentioned cloistered, but you, you guys weren't cloistered, but you still lived... Like, you, the professors had to come to you when you still lived, like, in a certain area? 
So religious life up until through the 1700s was pretty much enclosed. Whether you were a contemplative nun like a Carmelite or a poor Clare where your life was devoted to prayer and you lived within that one house, all convents were semi-cloistered, I'd say. Sisters had academies where girls came to them. They didn't go out to teach, they brought girls in. And when Catherine Macaulay started, she didn't want to be a sister. She wanted to be able to take care of the people in the alleys and byways, where, go to the people where they were. And when they said, oh, you can't have women living together if you're not nuns, that's dangerous. So she said, well, on condition that we can be the walking nuns, which meant that we would leave the convent to go to ministry. So she started in 1831. There were a lot of what are called apostolic religious communities founded around that time where the women went to the people they served. So that, so technically we weren't cloistered, but all those traditions and customs kind of held on. So we didn't eat with our families. We didn't travel except in twos. Um, we didn't, we were pretty much to ourselves. We could visit our parents if they were dying, but not if they were sick. Oh, no. <laughs> so you can, like, could you take vacations and see them no, or no? No, no, no. The vacations we had were maybe a week in the year when the five o'clock bell didn't ring, when you could get, it was called natural rising, when you could get up when you wanted. It got to be where you could... Um, pick up a meal. You didn't have to show up at the same time with everybody in the dining room. You could, I forget what we called it, but you could eat. Now that, you couldn't be in a huge house like Macaulay Convent because you can't have ever 50 people going to the refrigerator. But I think they probably have some evenings when they pick up. I'm not sure what they do in the bigger houses. There aren't bigger houses now except retirement homes. So the changes were gradual. We learned to drive eventually. We did not go to the grocery store. We called in our, of course that's coming back now where they deliver your groceries. So it was not cloistered, but almost. So you talked about Vatican too, and you talked about some of the like, I guess practical changes that occurred? Were there any like theological, major theological changes that impacted um, the sisters? Oh, for sure. The most obvious was that the Mass went from Latin to English, where we could say something other than amen and with your spirit. Um, the other theological changes were more subtle and slower to become embedded this getting rid of the patriarchal system. Before we could make vows, some priest had to interrogate us to see if we were doing it of our own free will. So getting rid of, 
We were never under a diocesan bishop, but some orders were under the control of the diocesan bishop. So getting rid of some of that male patriarchy was slow in coming. But also the recognizing people's gifts, and this isn't so much theological, but when I entered, you were assigned a ministry, whether you wanted it or not. If you wanted to be a nurse, you might be told to be a teacher. If you wanted to teach little kids, you might be told to teach violin. Whether you could or not, you did it. Whether you were qualified or not, you did it. So those ch that changed pretty quickly. So um, was sister taught phys ed that I was living with. I mean, that was big to have a sister actually teach phys ed and dress in phys ed clothes. So the changes in clothing came slowly. The changes in understanding our place in the church are still evolving. So to gain our own voice, to speak out, we weren't encouraged to be engaged in the civic community. I guess we were supposed to vote, but that wasn't, you know, are you registered? Did you vote? Like it is today. So the theology, we're in the midst of a whole big change now, which some people still believe in the Garden of Eden and the Noah's Ark and the stories that were meant to teach a lesson. Some people look on as history and some look on as parable. So it's going to take a while to evolve into this new understanding of creation and how we're all part of the, every thing as an incarnation of God. Nature, Jesus, us. It's God becoming flesh all the time and in every way. Before I came to MVC, I had like no experience with sisters, like only what I saw on TV. Um, and usually it was just like, <laughs> that that and like really harsh and like the, the flying nun yeah <laughs> or like you know in school they would like yell at students or whatever so what's one thing you want to let like non-catholics know about sisters that you know we might be surprised or any miscon misconceptions you want to dispel well the stereotypes still live on i mean we benefited from them we could get i think the sisters in san francisco still get free bus transportation because of the care they gave during the gold rush. No. So we got a lot of perks because we didn't have a salary. We got room and board in exchange for teaching or nursing. So gradually we started getting stipends and then salaries. So the cute little nun, you know, that father took care of or somebody took care of came by because that's the way it was. Somebody had to give us. I remember when the sisters would leave for the summer, they'd go back to the main house because school was not in session. They'd come back in August or September and they'd have a pantry party and people would give canned goods to fill their pantry because they depended on the generosity of people for their food and shelter. So the stereotypes are, 
what you still see, but there are many good sisters that do wear a habit, and so we're still in that period of change. For some people, the habit is an important sign, and that was the big cry. Nobody will know you're a nun. I can assure you they know. <laughs> Whether it's the hair or the shoes or the how they walk or write or talk, people know. So, so people would like to keep us in that, up on that pedestal. We're only father and sister or holy, and I don't have to be. We all are called to holiness, and we're all called to service and good works, and you can't leave it for a few people. And I think that's part of what Vatican II was all about. The needs are so great that a core of sisters and priests can't fill all the needs. So everybody's got to live the gospel or live whatever faith that they have. Mm -hmm. And all the faiths value service Mm -hmm. and prayer and the common good. Those are universal. That's not Catholics only. So how do you end the stereotype? I guess one person at a time. But if you ask a kid today what a sister is, they don't know. Mm-hmm. So I don't think all those TV shows are reaching the younger people now. I don't know. Are they? I don't know. I'm in my 30s. so <laughs> I don't think there's that many depictions of old-time Catholic nuns. Except at the Playhouse, I think they're doing a play now that's retro. And it's funny because they emphasize the things that were goofy about the life then. Like, what was goofy? Can you give an example? Well, what you said about the ruler and the discipline would be one. Um, How they would do recreation or how they lived. It was a mystique because people didn't know. They weren't allowed behind the doors to know how sisters lived. So they'd march in a line into church, sit in the front pew, march back out, go back to the convent. And did they eat? Did they have hair? Did they, did they sleep in their clothes? You know, people didn't know. So I always liked the habit. It seemed like they had a real deep pocket. Well, what it was was a placket, a slit, and you wore a thing around your waist that was a pocket. So you went through the hole in the habit to get to that. Or we had a watch on a cord that we put in a little pocket up here. You didn't see our ankles. You didn't see our hair. All you saw were face and hands. So you just fill in the blanks with your imagination. And if you had a bad experience, then you emphasize that. If you had a because there was always a class clown, always somebody that would irritate the nun. I mean, they do it now. They irritate the teacher. There's always somebody that wants to get attention. And when I was growing up, you didn't talk back. Nowadays, kids talk back. Or if you went home and complained about what sister said or did, your parents doubled the punishment. Today, they march you up to the sister and say, you did something wrong to my kid. So 
not just the convent has changed, but the culture has changed. And for good reason, you know, there's been evidence of abuse, both by priests and nuns. So you do need to advocate for your child. So it's not, they're not saints. Everybody's a sinner. But there was a great respect and awe and admiration because I think people realize, you know, they don't own their homes, they don't own their dishes, their furniture, their, they don't have a big wardrobe. We had a good habit and an everyday habit. And you wore the same thing all the time. So they could see what people were sacrificing to become sisters. Today, I, I for sure have more than you have as a volunteer, but you know I have more than poor people have. So it's not, the vow of poverty isn't to, be, to live in destitution, it's to live whether you have it or you don't have it. This year you have it, next year you're someplace else and you don't have it. So it's, it's the, not to be possessed by your possessions. So we use the word our instead of my to emphasize that it wasn't mine. We had some things that were to our use, like the comb and brush was technically ours, but nobody else used it. So again, that's changed over time. I have a car, it's not mine, but nobody else drives it. So when I need, like you're experiencing, when it needs repairs, you tell the person that's in charge of repairing cars, and when it's worn out, or you fill out a form every year, what condition is your car in? Do you, how many miles does it have? And somebody else decides it's time to replace that car. Same thing with a computer or anything of substance. You don't just go out and spend money without consultation. What advice would you have for um, someone considering religious life today? Try it. You might like it. Find out more about it. Talk to people that are either living the life or there are people that work with people that want to know. Like we call them vocation directors. That uh, every order has somebody that you can talk to if you don't know an individual sister that you can talk to about it. But that first question is scary because they might try to drag me in. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I was afraid of. That I felt like I was being recruited in high school and that just pushed me away. So it's, um, there's, God calls people in, in a variety of ways, but if the call is genuine, it'll keep nagging you. It'll keep coming when you don't want it to. But you definitely should have life experience. They won't take anybody that's 18 anymore. Hmm. And they prefer that you have your education. But people change careers all the time, just like people in normal life do. If you're thinking about it, don't repress that thought. Check it out. 
And you've mentioned like we're undergoing a period of change or we're continuing to undergo a period of change. So what are your hopes and dreams for the religious life or, you know, sisterhood? That we would root out racism and patriarchy, that we would care for the environment and live lightly on the earth, that we would simplify our lives, that we would live simply so others could simply live, that we would be more accepting of diversity. So that we'd be perfect. (laughs) But again, everybody's at a different stage in their journey. And that's good that everybody's on a path, that um, we all see things through a different pair of eyes. And where you stand determines what you see. Many years ago, we had a sister that was working for the State Department of Health, something. But um, I think it's either, it's probably birth control was under her department. Could have been abortion. But she was told to get rid of that. And she said, I can't. It's a public job. It's legal. I, I can't impose my values on this department. And so she was told, either do it or you're out of the convent. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. I can't turn away from the need. And that happened a couple times. One was an attorney general in the East someplace. And she was told, you can't hold political office and be a sister. And she chose to stay in office. So that kind of abuse of power, because, well, Catholics in politics right now are under a lot of pressure to vote a certain way. What's the common good? What's the law? My values versus... There aren't easy answers to questions, but there's not one way for a Catholic to vote. There's lots of mitigating circumstances on very complex issues. So I would like to see heaven on earth. Will we get there? Step by step, we'll evolve, we'll become better. When you look back a hundred years, we've improved. We've ended slavery by that name. We've kept it in some ways, but women are voting, women are in the workforce. So there's civil rights and human rights that have come. Of course, they've come at a cost. The Industrial Revolution was great, but it's caused the environment to be on the brink of not sustaining life. So with every two steps forward, there's one back. So I just, my hope is that people can be on a path where they are finding their true selves and who God is calling them to be. Well, thank you so much, Sister Karen. That was a great conversation, and I loved getting to know you a bit more. Well, thank you. I hope that uh, you get some good feedback 